Hello, everyone, and welcome to Energy Security Cubed, one of the world's foremost energy security podcasts presented by the CGAI, or Canadian Global Affairs Institute. I'm Kelly Ogle, Managing Director here at CGAI. And I'm Joe Kalnan, Fellow and Energy Security Forum Manager at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Ilya Butuyev, one of the pioneers of quantitative commodity trading about the concept of virtual barrels and what they mean for energy security. We, but before we dive into that, let's have a quick discussion with Joe about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things with you, Joe? Oh, uh, things are great, Kelly. Just today, I actually uh, was participating in a webinar hosted by the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy about NATO's approach to energy security. So that was a very, very interesting uh, discussion. And I'll make sure that, uh, you know, our network on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter gets to be aware of the recording of that, which I think will come out in the coming week. Were the, those two fellows that we had on our podcast last fall, or were they involved in this webinar? Yes, Alex Landry, who was a uh, distinguished guest of ours from last year, he was uh, he put together the panel and was the moderator. So uh, always uh, always a pleasure to uh, talk with Alex. Yeah, great. Okay, what's up? Well, uh, first up, let's give an update on the current state of the investigation into the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. So on Wednesday, Sweden ended its probe into the identity of the people who attacked and ruptured the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines. These Baltic Sea pipelines were ruptured in explosions nearby the Danish island of Bornholm in September 2022, with several of the explosions happening within Sweden's exclusive economic zone. The Swedish Security Service, an agency of the Swedish Ministry of Justice tasked with intelligence counterespionage, and investigating crimes against Sweden's national security, said that, quote, Sweden does not have the jurisdiction to investigate this matter further, unquote. They determined that the sabotage did not target Sweden and therefore was not considered to be a threat to Sweden's security. This now leaves the German probe as the last remaining investigation into what happened to the Nord Stream pipelines. So far, it seems unlikely that Russia was behind the sabotage. And in fact, the Swedish investigation a year ago uh, said that they do not believe that Russia is the culprit. While Russia was playing games with gas supply to Germany in the months leading up to the explosions, the loss of the pipelines was a huge blow, not only to Russia's state-backed gas industry, but also for Russia's ability to keep Germany's economy tethered to Russian energy. You know, it's important to point out that without the cheap natural gas of the Nord Stream pipeline, Germany's industrial engine is sputtered almost to a halt. On Wednesday, German statistics showed that its industrial output has fallen for the seventh straight month. This decline is heavily concentrated in energy-intensive manufacturing, such as chemicals. With the destruction of Nord Stream, Germany has had to turn to, turn to more expensive LNG for much of its supply, raising costs for both businesses and consumers. But the damage is done. Without the pipeline, Germany has a free hand to act in opposition to Russia. The findings of the German probe may nevertheless cause significant geopolitical change. So far, evidence seems to be to implicate a pro-Ukrainian group operating with or without the knowledge of the Ukrainian government. If the Ukraine if Ukraine is in fact found to be responsible, it could diminish support for the Ukrainian cause in Western Europe. And a couple other points, Joe, you know, that would be catastrophic to the for the uh, Ukrainians but also I noticed that uh, 
Germany has announced uh, they're going to build four new gas plants to try to supplement their electrical needs. So, you know, what does that say about leadership? Yeah, yeah, that's that's another interesting story about Germany where it comes to uh, their decision to, I think they're certifying another 10 gigawatts of gas-fired power generation. Uh, and so the German government is putting up, I want to say, around 7.7 billion euros to make this happen. So that's around a third of the total capital cost, if I'm correct. Uh, I could be a little bit off my numbers. But uh, generally, Germany is uh, looking for ways to um, overcome their energy security challenges, what with the the shutdown of all of its nuclear well, power generation. The, they shut all their nuclear plants down. Yeah, and also the phase-out of uh, their large coal fleet is happening at the same time. Yeah, a, uh, a tough situation that Germany's going through right now. Well, yeah, and it's not going to get any easier. Sorry, I, I took us off the topic a bit there, but what else you got going on? Next up, let's quickly talk about Brazilian state-owned energy company Petrobras, which is going through several changes both domestically and abroad. So on Wednesday, Reuters reported that Petrobras is in talks with a slate of other national oil companies, including companies from China, India, and the Middle East, to consider the possibility of collaborating on energy projects. This includes a push to establish long-term contracts for importing Qatari LNG, as well as efforts to commission refurbishments for Brazil's aging fleet of refineries in collaboration with Kuwait's KPC. So these are uh, new deals to try to uh, extend and deepen Brazil's ties with the Middle East, China, and India. Uh, Petrobras has seen a major boost in oil production over the past three years, as four new floating production storage and offloading vessels, or FPSOs, were installed in the Miro oil field off the coast of Rio de Janeiro. This comes as Brazilian President Lula attempts to balance two major priorities. First, to fund a major overhaul of Brazil's social welfare state, and secondly, to commit to fast action on climate change. The aggressive stance of state-owned Petrobras is controversial in Lula's government. The company has begun to drill exploratory wells in sensitive ecological areas and continued investments of the line with fast approaching emissions targets, quite a quandary. However, strong national energy companies are also a historical linchpin of Latin America's left-wing populism, given their scope for direct impacts on employment, cheap energy prices, and state-led economic planning. As Petrobras continues to the global expansion, questions will remain how long of a leash it will be provided by the political masters. You know, it sort of reflects what's happened in Mexico as well, Joe. With, you know, AMLO had all these plans about, you know, green energy and moving forward with the transition and you know they're as deep into it in mexico as they are uh looks like brazil is going to be as deep into it as mexico has been for decades so it's a quandary anyways great stories Jim. it is interesting how you know in many ways uh renewables are more of a sign of uh highly capitalist and not very state controlled jurisdictions over energy whereas you know these kind of incumbent national oil companies are very dominant in uh in areas where there's more state control. So it's something something to think about. Yeah, that's an inter- that's an interesting topic, Joel. Um, we should explore that more because there is a certainly a, they're diverse, right? They're, uh, they're, you know, in their scope versus their uh, outputs. That's really an interesting point. Never thought of it like that, but you're absolutely right. Great, Joel. For sure, Kelly. And uh, just to our listeners, 
if you like these stories and would like to hear more and read more and you know get a broader perspective on all the stuff going on in energy security around the world, please subscribe to our newsletter. And this uh, newsletter comes out every Wednesday morning, and uh, it basically includes my whole reading list. It's a free newsletter delivered right into your inbox every Wednesday morning. So please subscribe. Great, Joe. Uh, let's switch over to our interview with Ilya. Very interesting discussion about uh, virtual barrels and how big that market is on the, on the globe. People are going to enjoy this. For today's interview, recorded February 5, 2024, we discussed the concept of virtual barrels, how they shape global and local markets for oil, and the implications of this market design for energy security. With us to discuss this from New York is Ilya Bushiev. Dr. Ilya Bushiev is the former president of Coke Global Partners, where he launched and managed their global derivatives trading business for over 20 years. He introduced several energy derivatives products and is recognized at, as one of the pioneers in energy options trading. He is currently managing partner at Pentathlon Investments and an adjunct professor at New York University, where he teaches energy trading for the Mathematics in Finance Master's Program at the Courant Institute of Mathematical Sciences. He is also the author of a textbook released last year titled Virtual Barrels, Quantitative Trading in the Oil Market, which we will link in the show notes. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks, thanks much. It's, it's my great pleasure to be here. Well, we're really delighted to have you join us on Energy Security Cube, Ilya. Let's get right to it. Um, you, do you want to talk, tell, take a few minutes and talk about your career as you were hired by Coke Supply and Trading directly after completing your PhD in applied math in, in 1997, making you one of the pioneers of the nascent field of quantitative oil trading, which I'm, you know, I'm really, really, really excited to learn more about today. To start with, what was the state of oil trading when you entered the field and what are some of the most significant ways that has changed? As we, as we discussed a little bit before we started, you know, I've been around oil production all my life and have, you know, I hedged the derivative, hedged the barge, uh, the discount and hedged the differential and hedged oil here and there, different quantities, qualities when I was in the business. But, you know, the business has really changed in the last quarter century, correct? Absolutely. Very different, uh, as you said, uh, 1997 when I joined Coke uh, uh, with a PhD in math, uh, knowing nothing about uh, uh, the oil markets. Uh, but I was hired by, by smart managers uh, on the physical side who thought maybe hiring a, a nerd, uh, maybe a lottery ticket on the future. Uh, what if financial markets become more, more sophisticated? Uh, maybe we'll take a shot on hiring a mathematician. So my initial mandate uh, was uh, to build the pricing models for derivatives, which took me about three months to do. And after three months, my boss told me, well, Ilya, we don't really know what to do with, uh, with your models. Uh, if you think your models make money, uh, well, here is the phone, um, here is the risk allocation. If you need any introduction, let us know. Otherwise, good luck to you. So I ended up managing uh, basically a derivatives portfolio literally uh, three to five months after I left academia. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and I basically had the same job for nearly 25 years. Uh, in a, in a, in a 25 years later, I sort of became the old timer, uh, maybe the dumbest guy in the room, maybe I should say the slowest guy in the room, 
where um, uh, I could no longer keep up uh, with the models that my traders were running. So to answer your um, to your, your question, what changed? I, I would say the biggest change uh, was the speed. Everything became so so much faster in in this twenty five years. That seems like it's a uh, common refrain for like the development of markets over the last uh, however many years with the computers and now AI and all that sort of stuff. Who knows where that'll take us as well? So I'd like to turn now to your uh, recently released textbook. Uh, which is, you know, virtual barrels, quantitative trading in the oil market. Uh, this book delves into the world of oil derivatives and the behavior of professional market participants who trade them, uh, such as uh, yourself in your career. And like you mentioned, all your all those traders who are now experimenting with these new algorithms. So, but to start off with, uh, what are these uh, so-called virtual barrels and what is their meaning for uh, the benchmark mm-hmm. oil prices, Brent and uh, WTI? Well, first of all, I'll just correct. It's not really a textbook. Uh, It's a book about quantitative history of the uh, the oil market, even though uh, I was uh, fortunate uh, to to be able to use this book as a textbook for my my class that I teach at at NYU. Now, going back to, uh, to your question, what are the virtual barrels? And I'm sure uh, all the listeners have heard the term paper barrels. Uh, what I didn't realize until actually recently when I was working on this book, that this term existed for over 150 years. So the term paper barrels effectively was used to a certain degree uh, in the Western Pennsylvania in the, in, the, in the first oil exchanges. There were a bunch of oil exchanges existed in Western Pennsylvania around 1870s, uh, where essentially uh, people were trading oil certificate written on paper. Uh, it was uh, always, it has always been very expensive to buy and sell uh, the full volume of oil. So essentially those contracts were structured uh, as contracts for differences which subsequently evolved into something we call futures contracts now. So I basically thought after 150 years, maybe it's time to to recognize a a change. And I basically relabel the uh, paper barrels into virtual barrels because now we no longer even write things on paper. So everything lives somewhere on the cloud or maybe on the blockchains. Uh, But in a nutshell, that's just an upgrade from the traditional uh, term paper barrels. Just quickly, uh, could you uh, give your thoughts on what these sort of virtual barrels mean for the benchmark oil prices? Uh, well, it means a lot. I guess sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, people outside of the oil industry forget that in the oil market, the price for the physical barrel um, uh, is determined by futures. We tend to f- think uh, following our uh, economics textbooks that futures are the derivatives of spot prices. It is actually the other way around in the oil industry where we can say that the spot price is a financial derivatives of futures because the actual price determination happens uh, in the futures market. Uh, And then the, the physical market, there is no one large bazaar where we can show up with barrels and take oil home. We always negotiate oil 
for a specific uh, delivery in a specific location at a specific time. So we can only negotiate the differential to the futures, but the futures is the primary uh, uh, price determination. So, and this is where, that's why the impact of this virtual battles is so important because uh, the, most of the prices are still determined by the futures. Uh, I would also say that uh, not all the virtual battles um, are sort of created equal. Uh, it's important to differentiate uh, among them. Uh, maybe the hedge funds are managing uh, 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 cross-market portfolio of stocks, bonds, where oil plays an auxiliary role as a hedge against inflation. So their strategies are very different. Or the third group of large market participants in the virtual battles are option traders. Uh, they, there is a huge over-the-counter market for options and derivatives. And these virtual battles are simply hedging large over-the-counter exposure. So basically, there are all kinds of virtual battles. They transact for reasons totally unrelated to fundamentals. Uh, and, and they are the ones who ultimately plays a huge uh, impact in determining the price for the benchmark, which is WTI and Brent. And, and the physical price is then subsequently determined effectively as a financial derivative of these futures. You know, it's it's fascinating. It, it's such a, it's like it, like when you when you said that in in the cloud and out there, that really is true. Uh, but if I could ask, in a recent article that you wrote for the Oxford Institute of Energy Studies, and explain some of the concepts of your book, you discuss the various types of market, who like who they are that trade these barrels. Who are they, Elia, and what are their what are their motives for in, involvement in the speculative trade? Yeah, that's that again. They're they're all very different. Uh, so uh, the 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 first category. Uh, folks uh, trading based on the historical patterns. They're typically called algos or CTA, commodity trading advisors. They are forecasters. They're trying to identify the historical patterns. And, and then the second uh, group, another large group of funds uh, called risk parity funds. Uh, effectively, they're hedging the portfolio of stocks and bonds um, uh, with oil. Because the stocks and bonds, if you run a portfolio of stocks and bonds, uh, you can think that like uh, stocks and bonds naturally diversify each other with respect to growth. So, for example, when uh, when growth is high, stocks go up, bonds go down, and growth is low, stocks go down, bonds go up. But both stocks and bonds can suffer uh, if you got an expected period of high inflation, because ultimately uh, the value of every every asset is a discounted. Uh, present value of future cash flows. So if you got uh, if you got uh, unexpected inflation, everything goes down, so you need a hedge. So and oil historically has proven to be one of the uh, uh, one of the main instruments that people can use uh, uh, to hedge inflation. So it's a different type of participants. And as I mentioned, option traders are also very large. Another thing to touch on would be um speculative positioning on futures and the concept of the you know you just touched on it briefly based because of inflation but on financial supply and demand for these barrels by the speculators who have no intention of ever taking physical possession right yeah um, i mean i 
sort of propose that uh, concept of financial SD because we're all familiar with the physical SD, uh, supply and demand. And I was thinking, how can we contrast the two? And like one way to do it, uh, uh, since you got some data on their futures holdings uh, published by the regulators, so you can actually track changes in their uh, in their futures holding over a period of time, uh, and then you can convert these changes in futures holding into financial barrels per day. Uh, and then in that case, you can almost create your balances, which I call uh, financial S&D by tracking uh, the number of financial barrels per day uh, being bought and sold on a daily basis in, in the market. So um, this is all leading to the impact on uh, energy security. And of course, the focus of this podcast is energy security and uh, oil and uh, all, all energy sources, the geopolitics around this. And I think that this, is, this does have some fairly significant impacts. And uh, you've talked about the emergence of these quantitative algorithms and uh, mm -hmm. how much faster they trade oil futures, much higher frequencies than was ever possible before. So, for example, mm -hmm. in the late 90s, futures trading was just a little bit larger than the physical oil market. I want to say two to three times larger, maybe. But today, between 2 and 2.5 billion virtual barrels are traded per day. That's 20 to 25 times larger than the physical market. Uh, so as a result, there's this ongoing battle of control over oil prices between the entities that have power over the physical barrels. This is, mm -hmm. you know, the big example of that in 2023 or for 2022 and 2023 is, is cuts by OPEC. And uh, they're in a struggle with the algorithms, which have maintained more of a downward pressure on oil prices, I think, in, in 2023 and now into 2024. Uh, so how would you judge you know, OPEC's success or failure in controlling these oil prices? And what developments could we expect over the next few months with regards to this struggle between you know, OPEC and the uh, algorithms? Let me kind of comment first uh, on, on the numbers you, you mentioned, about two to two and a half billion of this uh, uh, financial barrels trade every day, and we consume a hundred million. So two, and a, two to two and a half billion, that's just WTI and Brent and futures. So if I add up uh, futures on refined products like diesel, gasoline, uh, then uh, if I add up options, which is another huge market, and add up futures on other grades of oil, such as uh, WTI Houston, Midland, Dubai, Melbourne, uh, and add up over the counter market, then the total is at least 5 billion, probably wow. close to seven. So uh, you're talking about, about 50 to 60 times more per day we trade than we consume. I know, I know people should be taking this measure with a grain of salt, for sure. Uh, and there will be some skeptics. I understand um, and I accept that challenge. But nevertheless, it shows you the magnitude when we consume 100 million per day and we trade six, five to six billion. Uh, it tells you that how large these markets are. Then going to your question, you're absolutely right. I mean, the whole 2023, uh, was a battle between um, uh, between OPEC uh, and essentially speculators. Uh, perhaps the highlight or the low light, however you want to think about it, uh, was around October, November, when if you remember Saudi Arabia and OPEC was uh, 
cutting the production roughly by about one or two million physical barrels per day. And at the same time, using my metric of financial S&D, in October alone, uh, the algorithm sold 7 million barrels per day. And then another, an additional 3 million financial barrels per day in November. So no wonder you shouldn't be surprised that the prices actually went down during that period, uh, despite OPEC cuts, which obviously frustrated OPEC a lot. Uh, uh, despite the cuts, financial flows uh, really dominated. However, I do think that OPEC is actually doing, uh, doing fairly well. Uh, I think they, uh, they see the changes. They acknowledge the, uh, the arrival and the power and the impact of these financial barrels. They're clearly learning how they operate and they're learning how to adapt and change their own strategy. So the market is sort of a, in a, I would call an unstable equilibrium now. So between the physical and the financial. On the physical side, uh, basically to kind of summarize the state of the world on the physical side, the non-OPEC supply is so large uh, uh, that it covers pretty much the entire global demand growth, which means OPEC has no choice but to continue with cuts to prevent, um, uh, to prevent the oversupply. So the cuts by themselves should be bullish as long as, the, as, uh, as OPEC is able to continue. However, the speculators, as I said, uh, were offsetting the impact of these cuts uh, by selling financial barrels for the variety of reasons could be related to higher interest rates or expecting recession or some technical patterns that they have identified. Now, what's gonna happen in the future? Obviously, it's very difficult to, uh, to predict oil prices, but I think it's quite possible that uh, OPEC will uh, exit that battle victorious. Um, uh, and I think uh, they will likely win the game of patience uh, because some of the technical signals are, uh, are likely to flip uh, with the passage of time. And we already seen that they, that they are flipping, which means that the, the, the financial barrels that the speculators have sold have to be bought back. So simply with the passage of time and some patience, it can force speculators to effectively buy back whatever they have sold over the last um, half a year, which potentially could lead to higher prices. So I think in my opinion, uh, uh, the, the, in the battle between uh, OPEC and the speculators at the moment, OPEC has a stronger hand because uh, it's quite likely that speculators are going to be pushed to exit, but it could result in a, in a higher prices. Is it not true though that the on the speculate on the on the uh, paper barrels on the virtual barrel side, it's like, and I hate to use an analogy, the gambling analogy, but when you bet when you make a bet with a bookmaker. Yeah. He's laying your bet off against a, a, the the opposite bet, right? So, is it not the the my question is how balanced is the the supply demand like the 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 options sales of like you say you have they're going to have to buy them back. What's the what's generally the term of the of these uh, contracts, Elia? Like, a, yeah, and and I'm sure that they just well, if you're like you say, fifty times a, a, the the physical 
a day. Um, could there be mar my I guess my question leads to is I guess major spikes could happen if you got the wrong wrong match on on uh, purchases and sales, right? Is that not true? Uh, I mean, uh, the market, the financial markets could also be easily uh, unbalanced. Uh, like one of the important uh, indicators, for example, uh, in uh, uh, that determines the behavior of these uh, algorithms um, uh, is the shape of the futures term structure. Uh, uh, the shape, like backwardational container. Right. And more, more importantly, not even the shape itself, but uh, what I what I call acceleration or deceleration in that shape. For example, uh, when we moved from a stronger backwardation to a weaker backwardation or even slight contango, that signal was a very strong uh, signal in a computer's model that created a, a very strong uh, cell signals. Now we have been in this weak backwardation for a while uh, and the strength of the signal started to fade away. Uh, and what's happening now, if we got a little bit of a, a pop and backwardation, which could easily be driven by geopolitical events, there is a lot, all kind of stuff happening in the world. So you got a little bit pop in the backwardation, which gonna trigger acceleration and backwardation again. And that's alone can force uh, algorithms and CTA to exit their shorts and push the prices higher. Now, going back to your question on imbalance, then the bigger question is going to be, uh, so when CTAs were selling, OPEC was taking the other side, in, an, in right. a sense. Uh, now, when CTAs are going to be buying back, who is going to take the other side then? Uh, and that's where I see a potential for imbalance, because uh, on the downside, I can see the buyer and I can see the seller, on the upside, when the algorithm is going to start buying, you're going to need somebody to come in uh, and actually sell it to them to prevent the price from going higher. Who is it going to be? Uh, I mean, the nature of seller would be an oil producer or an inventory hedger. But uh, with the recent consolidation in the oil industry, you see all the acquisitions, and Exxon and Chevron are buying companies that used to be a large hedgers in the market. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned that uh, there is a growing imbalance potentially in the market where when the algorithms have to cover their existing position, there may not be just enough uh, sellers in the futures market. I just jump in for a second here because it, a thought just occurred to me, and you can tell me if I'm completely wrong here, Ilya. Um, but uh, it seems to me as though what you're saying is that there's there's a lot of shorts in the market right now. And I think we've seen over the past few years examples of uh, short squeezes happening in equities, for example, where you get enough fiscal firepower together, you can kind of force all these shorts to uh, cover their positions in really unfavorable ways that drives the price of whatever the underlying, um, the underlying asset is. Uh, so I, I could imagine that let's say bad actors like um let's say that uh russia decided that uh, they'd like to drive up the price of oil in the short term by kind of triggering this kind of short squeeze is that is that something that's possible or would you say that that's uh less likely uh i mean the the squeezes uh uh 
probably uh, less likely uh, uh, because currently the short, as I said, uh, uh, they are diversified uh, large algorithmic hedge funds. Uh, and they actually transact across many, many different asset classes. Mm. So the squeezes usually occur when you have a lot of pain in one particular market. Uh, the current shorts are, are held by very diversified funds. And they actually, yes, they're losing money this year on oil, but they're doing so well on uh, equities in the interest rate markets because interest rates have been trained in all year, equities have been trained in all year. So they're making so much money in other asset classes. So uh, some losses in the, in the oil space kind of as a noise. So... I mean, the squeeze in the traditional definition of squeeze are probably less likely, uh, but the structural imbalances uh, are more likely. Let, let's come back to North America here, uh, Ilya. And, you know, everybody knows that the launch of the Trans Mountain expansion will bring an outlet for Western Can Canadian heavy crude or WCS into the global market will likely causing a restructuring of the market for Canadian oil. And we see some disintegration of the differential already um, based on the, that pro project projection. Um, what changes do you think Canadian oil industry uh, will exhibit be based on uh, greater financialization of the heavy barrel? Um, the Canadian market today, obviously TMX is a big structural change. I think my understanding it's, kind of a practically ready to go. Uh, but at the moment, um, the Canadian market is oversupply. Uh, it ties to the global picture. As I said, the non-OPEC supplies are growing and in Canada as well. Uh, and I think in anticipation of TMX, uh, people will store in a lot of oil. So Canadian storage is kind of full now. So currently the Canadian differentials are fairly weak, reflecting the basically an oversupply market. But it's going to clean up. And if you look at the Canadian forward curve, the forward differentials are much tighter, closer to about $12 or $10, which is basically going to reflect uh, the cost of transportation to the West Coast, which is significantly cheaper than the cost uh, of transportation to the, to the Gulf Coast. But the key change, again, from my perspective, as somebody who tracks uh, financial barrels, uh, as the Canadian market have access to global markets, they're going to globalize. So the, uh, the Canadian markets are going to globalize. And the moment you're going to globalize, uh, you're going to financialize more. So the Canadian markets may well be put on the radar of these financial barrels. Currently, they are participating in the Canadian market already, but not massively yet. Uh, but when uh, uh, when Canada get access to the global markets, I think that's gonna significantly escalate. And I'm actually already seeing some of the hedge funds are looking for experienced traders uh, to trade financially the Canadian market. So I think uh, more more changes are coming into into your backyard as well. Yeah, and I, I you know it's it's it's. Uh possibly you know, if you do the joe's math you know the tmx adds eight hundred thousand barrels per day of uh, uh into a different market let's just call it that 
And if you do the math, the 25 times that, that's a lot of barrels into new barrels into the financial market that aren't really there yet, I guess, um, from what you're just saying. So I, yeah, there'll be, there'll be some volatility to say the least in the, but in the longer, in that forward curve should reflect a differential that's much more attractive to the Canadian producer. Uh, it is for sure, but uh, again, this uh, the, this volatility hasn't yet arrived uh, because the financial participation today in the Canadian market is fairly small. But I do know that many of the algorithmic funds they are looking at the possibility to potentially significantly increase their participation. Uh, in the Canadian market, and it's actually a chicken and egg question. One of the reasons that they cannot participate today uh, is a lack of liquidity. But the moment they see more liquidity, because Canadian producers, as you said, differential is tight, the, the moment they see Canadian producers start participating more actively in forward markets on WCS, that actually going to increase liquidity. And the moment they see more liquidity, liquidity they're going to participate and bring even more liquidity. So that whole thing can, esc can, can escalate. Great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'll that'll have uh, really interesting impacts here in Alberta. I'm 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 looking forward to seeing how that changes things here. You know, maybe we'll get a branch of Citadel based here as well. Uh, <laughs> but uh, one one last thing, a very very broad question here, Ilya. And uh, again, we really appreciate you coming on here. Great uh, great conversation. But uh, the last few years have seen a dramatic restructuring of global oil flows, as uh, you know, you know, and we know, and everybody who listens podcast knows. Uh, but there and there isn't any sign so far that 2024 will be any more stable, and we're already seeing all sorts of events that uh, could easily uh, bring us into some really interesting situations. What with uh, the situation with the United States and Iran and in the Middle East. But uh, what are some possible uh, other black swan events that we we should uh, consider and you know do something to prepare for in 2024? Uh, black swans. Um... You know, I you just asked me maybe five minutes ago, and I know I probably gonna sound a little uh, contradicting myself. My, maybe you'll give me a second second chance to answer it. So I sort of dismiss um, the the probability of squeezes uh, because I was thinking more about like uh, uh, about market based squeezes where supply and demand are imbalanced. But now, I mean, you're raising this good point. And one of the issues, for example, that have been on the back of my mind uh, is the risk of cybersecurity in, in commodity markets. Uh, so for example, in 2023, last year, there was already an episode in US treasury markets where uh, you may remember like hackers uh, uh, were able to impact uh, a, a fairly small segment uh, of uh, U.S. Treasury trading in, in China, it turned out to be not a big deal uh, at the end, but it was a good reminder that uh, with the geopolitical situation today, there may be some uh, bad players in the, in the market with uh, malicious intents. And if you look at what has uh, at a couple of episodes in the commodity markets over the last few years, well, WTI prices, you remember, went negative uh, to minus 40. Well, even though the, the common story uh, 
uh, is explained by the, the, the lack of storage capacity, but look, minus 40 cannot happen, uh, cannot happen by itself. So there should be some other uh, uh, forces that can push the price to this level or episode in, in nickel, the crazy, crazy volatility right. in nickel. So to me, it's like well, for markets like WTI and brand, they're probably sufficiently big and robust to be manipulated uh, by uh, by bad players. But as financial barrels expand into these less developed regional markets, such as Canada, or maybe like WTI, uh, anyway, financial markets don't quite exist in Guyana yet, but in the, as they penetrate, as the algorithms at computers penetrate in these smaller markets, which are definitely more squeezable, um, and the whole commodity system, to be honest, hasn't really been tested yet. Uh, fortunately, we didn't have a reason, but uh, this is one of those kind of uh, unknown unknowns. Uh, but I think it's, 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 it's something to keep in mind because you can see how rogue algorithms or algorithm, algorithms designed to be rogue can, uh, can cause some material disruption in, uh, in the financial commodity markets. Maybe not in the benchmarks like WTI and brand, uh, but maybe more, um, uh, in the regional markets. So we just don't know how, how robust the whole system is. Great answer. We uh, we always ask our podcast guests one last question, and mm -hmm. uh, that is, uh, where are you reading these days? And uh, you know, this could be you know big heavy tomes on uh, oil and gas, but also we are welcome to hear any uh, you know lighter fare that you're reading for fun. Reading, okay. Uh, well, first of all, yeah, I have a couple of uh, things on my my desk now. Well, first of all, I'm an, I'm a nerd. Uh, what nerds uh, uh, read for fun? Uh, I'm reading another book about machine learning by Paul by Paul Wilmot. I just want to understand what's really behind all this uh, noise and look at the mass behind it. Um, the other thing I'm reading, actually rereading. There was a great book by James uh, Surovecki, Wisdom of Crowd, which I skimmed through 10 years ago, but it's about the behavior and how that the crowd cannot outperform the collection of individuals. I'm trying to reread it. And I guess the final, uh, finally, my, my own, uh, uh, when I was working on my own book, I got pretty deep in the history of Western Pennsylvania. And then I realized that I know very little about the history of my favorite city owners, which is New York City. So I'm reading, uh, I'm reading uh, quite a few books now about the history of New York City. So maybe one day I'll put it all together and write another book about machine learning application to behavioral crowd or history. But that's probably ten years, uh, ten years from now. Well, I'll give you a little a, a book to read, Ilya, about the history of New York. Um, the I read it a couple of years ago by David McCullough. It's the history of the Brooklyn Bridge and uh, the building of that bridge in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. It's a very fascinating book about what New York was like at the time. So I would give you that back. That's a it's a really interesting uh, biography of a of a project. So, Ilya, we can't thank you enough for coming on our podcast. You're going to give our listeners and you gave us both a, a very broad understanding of something that was uh, in let's just say in the cloud for us so thanks so much for coming on thank you kelly and thank you joe my pleasure 
Yeah, of course, Ilya. We'll uh, link your recent book in the show notes here. And that book is, again, Virtual Barrels, Quantitative Trading in the Oil Market. And, uh, of course, we can't recommend it enough. And let's, let's not scare people. It's not really a textbook, even though I'm allowed <laughs> to use it as a textbook. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Jill Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.